Welcome everyone to another episode of the Progress City Radio Hour in our town hall. Happy New Year, Michael. It's 2023. How is that possible? I don't know. I ask. Every time there's a new year, I feel like, wow, it sounds so futuristic. When really, it's just one more than the last. But it really does. <laughs> it sounds like we're living in the future. And indeed, 2023. Well, I mean, growing up as a kid, there was 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was far in the future. Then there was 2010. That was even further. 2020 was crazy. And I mean, 2023, even further than that. You think we would have all the things now but but we don't have all the things no 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 uh yeah i mean so many things we don't have i thought it was all gonna end in 2012 anyway so this is just <laughs> so extra things gravy yeah yeah playing exactly. with house money uh, michael we are back in the town hall which means we've got somebody in the interview chair who is uh, who are you interviewing today well, we're starting the year off right with someone I've wanted to talk to for a long time. And this is somebody I think our listeners are really going to enjoy. We're speaking to Mr. Robert Garner, Bob Garner, a writer, producer, director, a man of many hats, this fellow. I would say so. He's a very talented man from what I hear. Absolutely. And responsible for a lot of the you know, every month we try and show some videos in our um, live stream for our Patreon people. And some of the favorite things we've shown have been Mr. Garner's work, some of his Epcot preview materials. And, uh, well, I don't want to spoil some of the things that he's done. But if if you were a Disney fan in the 80s, then there, there are things that stick in your mind that uh, Mr. Garner is responsible for. So we're really excited to talk to Bob. Yeah, I'd say so. I think we should uh, not spoil it, in fact, and just get right to it. Here's Michael talking with Bob Garner. Well, I wondered if you could start off talking. I was reading a little online about you have very interesting origins and a very interesting <laughs> background. Uh, just tell us a little how you got started and what your early life was like and how you got into showbiz. Oh, my gosh. You're going back uh, BD before Disney, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Turn it all the way back. Very long story short, I uh, was uh, playing with a garage band, as a lot of people do. I'm a drummer, and so I, I became pretty proficient at it. My brother taught me how to play, and he managed our group, and we made a uh, demo record at a studio. We came in and it was a studio in Atlanta, followed uh, James Brown. I guess he had recorded their Papa has a brand, got a brand new bag or something. So we thought that was pretty cool. And so after recording it, it was a demo record. I never thought anything about it, but the long story short is it became a hit. Um, and so that was a surprise. And so I was about 17 years old. We started playing college towns and things like that and um and then i sat in with a, another group and on a flip side and, and that was a hit record but the way that ties in is that 
they uh, flew it out from North Carolina. I grew up in a little town in North Carolina, a suburb north of Asheville, up in the uh, western North Carolina. They flew us out to be on a television show in Los Angeles, and uh, I was fascinated with the production. I was watching you know, how everything was done for the television production. Uh, I think I was more interested in that than the music, <laughs> and I kind of had a feeling that'd be kind of a passing uh, kind of a one-hit wonder kind of thing. And uh, so I went to the University of North Carolina and um, pursued a degree in television and film there and minored in journalism. And I wanted to get into some kind of production, and I was really interested in writing and was bugging my parents. And my two older brothers thought I was an idiot and dreaming to want to go out to L.A. and my parents, I just bugged them. They said, "All right, you know, Bob has his degree. Let us let him go out there. He'll be home in two weeks." You know, so I went out to L.A. like an idiot on my own. <laughs> and I guess I was just naive or something. And uh, and I walked into the the uh, another long story short, I walked into the CBS office on Sunset Boulevard. There, the CBS television personnel was there, and the production was done at television city which was another location and this lady plucked me out of line and i i don't know i must have been clean cut looking or something and interviewed me and in three days i was working as a, a production assistant and a backstage page at tv city and uh, i got assigned to carol burnett and uh red skelton and some others uh, students i talked to have no idea who they are but Carol Burnett's show was a great show to work on. It taped on Sunday nights. I was continuing my education out there uh, at USC and, and Columbia. And I went, uh, you know, went, when I went to CBS, I was hired part time. And uh, so another long story short is Carol saw something that I was writing in her dressing room. And she said, that's pretty good. Let me, I'd like to send that to Jerry Taylor at CBS programming in New York see what he thinks you could write some segments or on-air promos and so i wrote six segments i think for mash and all the family this type of shows and oh, wow. and uh, they turned down all six of them so <laughs> i'm like 23 years old like oh man you know copying an attitude typical young guy and carol gave me the what for she was great great show to work on and she said you know you're only 23 you know this is the network try again and so she would she was encouraging at the same time. And so I tried again and I, I learned a lot being, I did have a fairly decent attitude, I guess, about that because I, I knew I was lucky to even be there. It wasn't the mailroom. It was, you know, out in the, on the stages and learning production and watching. And so I tried the writing thing again. I started getting my stuff accepted and actually wrote on air promos and segments for several of the CBS shows and I worked there for about six years, and uh, then the big shows started going off the air. The big variety shows, they were expensive, and uh, I worked on the summer with on the Glenn Campbell show. I started writing stuff for him, and uh, he replaced the Smothers Brothers on a summer show, and then he got his own show. And uh, then his show eventually started the season he didn't re they didn't renew the season so i was doing freelance work as production coordinator and this and that on different shows that came up uh especially back with cbs because of the connection and then um i um read a book about walt disney and uh by bob thomas and i was absolutely fascinated with that 
and the studio in Burbank. And I, I was uh, getting ready to to get married and started life. And and uh, my wife's parents were saying, well, you got to stop dreaming and get a real job. And I thought, well, that's great. You know, so I just, I don't know. I just was brave or dumb or something, but I went down to meet with, uh, he was the editor for Calendar and the LA Times. And he also had a connection with the entertainment section of the New York Times. His name was Irv Latosky, big cigar smoking guy. He eventually became editor for, I think it was Hollywood Reporter, Variety, one of them. But anyway, when he was at the Times and he said, you know, he said, uh, you know, I, I kind of like you and we'll, what do you want? And I said, well, I, whatever happened to the original Mouseketeers? And he said, uh, wow, I don't know. I'm not sure where they are now and all that. So another long story short, I wrote an article about them and um, that got me over onto the studio a lot, a newspaper article of all things had nothing to do with production of television or film and uh got to know arlene lugwood and the publicist over there and everything and they introduced me to annette and a lot of the original mouseketeers and then the new ones coming along uh lisa welch and all those people and so i interviewed them and did this article and uh strangely enough the la times didn't run it but the new york times did and then um so by then, I'd gotten to know some people on the lot and uh, ended up writing another article about whatever happened to the Little Rascals for the L.A. Times. And um, I kind of kid Leonard Malton about that. I said, you stole a lot of my original. <laughs> 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 a lot of them died after that. But they, uh, somebody told me that a job was coming up as a writer, producer, especially for commercials, possibly short films for the Disneyland ambassador or Walt Disney World. Then there was just those two parks. And I interviewed with about 270 something people and I just got married and I was pretty depressed. I thought, eh, what are my chances? I don't know anybody. So they kept calling back and calling back and got it down to five. And then, uh, so I got that job and I worked out, an off, out of an office at Disneyland. They kept sending me up to the studio a lot little promotional films together and i was writing um commercials television commercials and radio spots and we had to do print and i had to kind of learn it all so anyway i was i was doing that for about two years and one day i was uh, i stayed late in the office and marty sklar called me from imagineering it was called wed then and uh he said, this is Marty Sklar. And of course, I knew who he was and I nearly fell over. And he said, <laughs> would you be interested in coming up here and as a writer and then gradually moving into the film department? Because I know that's what you really want to do more of. And we're starting this new thing called Epcot Center. And I'd heard about it. And uh, our first international park, Tokyo Disneyland and so forth. So it took about 10 seconds and a breath before I said, yes, <laughs> Right, <laughs> couldn't wait. <laughs> so that was neat. And so that turned into uh, about a 16 year, um, uh, on staff relationship with Disney as a writer producer. And then I became executive producer of film and video and then the living seas, a lot of projects and, uh, absolutely loved that. I was just, they, I was involved with, so many things and then have actually contracted with disney ever since and different projects like disney treasure secret stories and magic i wrote directed that diane disney miller and 
Dick Cook and uh, Jim Garber brought me out to do that. And um, I had Julie Andrews host it. All it was kind of cool. And uh, George Lucas is in it. And we filmed him in his uh, personal library. And I reached over to touch the, the original props. And George said, don't touch or we can't do this. So <laughs> <laughs> don't touch. Bob. I went, oh, I, I, what? You look a deer. She you know when to touch everything. Right. <laughs> Me too, sitting there, all the original stuff. So anyway, I kind of got a rabbit trail there. But um, back to when I was at WED, which eventually became, of course, as you know, Walt Disney Imagineering. Marty called me in one day and he said, uh, I've got somebody coming in who wants to meet you. And and I said, who's that? And he said, uh, uh, Mrs. Disney, Lillian Disney. So he assigned me a short, turned out to be a rather short, encapsulated version of Walt Disney's career, his personal life and his, his business philosophies and everything, because uh, he was posthumously awarded the National Art Director's Award. So mm. Uh, I was really honored to do that. It was really fun working with Dave Smith in those days in the archives and finding footage of Walt and pieces of that, of course, have been used kind of like parsley everywhere ever since. But um, that was kind of the, I think it was 18-minute version of the Walt Disney story. And then Marty said, I want you to document everything we're doing with Epcot Center. And he said, but nothing exists as you probably have seen, but renderings and some model building that was starting of the overall, the huge model of Epcot overall, future World World Showcase, and then the some of the show breakdowns for the pavilions for World Showcase, Future World. So I uh, worked with the studio people kind of back and forth. They gave me a little office over at the studio too. So I was kind of back and forth between both places. And it was so much fun because we had, the production coordinators for each pavilion would tell me where they were with the design and everything. And we'd shoot the renderings. And then I got a, 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 it was a system that had a snorkel camera that went down into the miniatures of like the France pavilion and just kind of went down and visited them as though they were finished, you know, get actually get down inside of them. I was like a little kid. I was so excited doing that. And he said, I want you to document everything all the way through when we start building the full-scale sets for all the future world pavilions, everything. And then when the construction starts on the site. So I asked him to set up a time-lapse camera, which sank in the sand. They had to reline it, but it was to get <laughs> space, spaceship Earth with, you know, going up time-lapse. That was amazing how it looks. You know, you've probably seen that footage or a spaceship. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know some of those guys in Florida thought I was nuts, some of the stuff we tried to do. But anyway, that's another long story because it took quite a while to, to document the first phases of the drawings and the models and nothing, you know, full scale was really being built much yet. They wanted to film the company, I guess Ron Miller, somebody wanted to film the show uh, on Main Street at Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom for other things that would be a like a featurette showing what an Epcot was. The public really didn't know what it was. Very few people had heard about it. Mm -hmm. And some people said it sounded like something you clean up, Epcot. But anyway, <laughs> um, and plus, we had been used, you know, what was familiar to people were Magic Kingdoms. It, it not Epcot was such a new concept for us. And then the you know the controversy a little bit about what Walt Disney really wanted to originally and all that 
stuff and what it became kind of like a permanent world's fair and all that. So, um, anyway, that, uh, I made a film called a dream called Epcot and we didn't have much to work with. We had to kind of do some reenactments and use drawings and, and models and put a little song together about we're getting ready or something, which, which I used again. I'll get to that in a minute, but, uh, that film played on main street and I think was used, um, uh, some other places as well. The Disney Channel wasn't born yet. And then later on, when the full construction started happening at various sites, the big backings for the energy pavilion, you know, the art, and the, the, the gigantic dinosaur things, and all these sets, um, we filmed that. And we had enough to make a film, uh, including some of the actual construction on the site in Florida um, called Epcot behind the scenes of Walt Disney's greatest dream. So I wrote, produced and directed that. And, um, and, and Marty and, and um, the management and everything at the studio, they were very happy with it. And uh, as Pat Scanlon, I think mentioned, they thank God they liked it and they showed it <laughs> at, um, to the stockholders. And, but it ended up, Again, like Parsley and everything, it was a featurette. I think it was released with Jungle Book or something, and it was on television places and, and just uh, played everywhere, really, to get the public interested in, in uh, Epcot and uh, the stockholders. Oh, yeah, and it was also used to, to show some, for future meetings with Exxon and GE and United uh, Technology, yeah. all of that. And, and then later on, I... I was the executive producer for all the media for the living seas and just um, some of the stuff I don't, I don't remember, but did a, didn't a lot for Epcot for sure. And um, it was just, that was a great time to be there because we had some, oh, then the Disney channel was born. So I cut a piece together for the Disney channel, telling people about that coming. I don't know why they chose me to do that because that was an imagineering, but we had our own film department there then. And our, we had an audio video department where we had actually had a film production department too. And a guy named Don Henderson managed it. And then I executive produced all the media, but um, worked closely with Randy Bright and, and Marty and Pat Scanlon. And uh, so was there for, for opening day. I got to uh, produce some of the segments for that CBS special with. Oh, really? Yeah. With Danny K. I actually got a credit. Yeah. Yeah, because we never got credit. It was really weird. We I used to give Marty a hard time about that because I uh, co-wrote the book Disneyland First Quarter Century, and there's no credits in it at all. And I said, Marty, you got wrote a book, and it says by Martin A. Sklard. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hey, Martin, what you want to give us credit? You know, the art director or me or the two of us wrote it and produced that book. And uh, let's see what else. Just, you know, they they just, we were moving so fast with Tokyo and Epcot and Disney Channel. And for some reason, Imagineering was tapped and working. But like I said, I had, a, I had a little office on stage four over at the studio. So it was great. I got to know a lot of those people there, too. And uh, I just, I, I loved it. You know, I, it was yeah, about 16 years on staff and have contracted with them ever since. We didn't get to do the Walt Disney World 50th because COVID basically killed that project. Oh, that's a shame. Very, it was really sad because 
Bob Weiss had me all ready to do it, and I was going to mentor some young directors, which which I do sometimes. I'm in New England now, but um, and I so I'm working on a project out of Boston and New York. But um, yeah, that was that was a bummer because they never really did anything like the one we did for Disneyland, the 90 minute special we did. Right. And it would have been well worth it. It's something that I think people are really would be interested in having that historical sort of retrospective. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I think also the secret stories and magic thing. uh, I mean, Julie Andrews obviously knew Walt Disney very well. And and I had her talk about that walking around the park, him, just the two of them and things like this really touching. And then when people could see faces like Exitensio and Rolly Crump and people who actually designed some of their favorite attractions, it, uh, we found that we premiered at the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs where Walt and Lillian stayed sometimes, snuck away there. And uh, so it was a beautiful old theater. And, but, people had tears in their eyes after the thing. And they were some people who really didn't have much interest in Disney went, wow, I really want to go to Disneyland now. Cause I know the story and the heart behind it and the footage we had of Walt Disney and, and Herb Ryman and some of the people who we just had uh, older footage of them. Mm-hmm. They, you know, we, for obvious reasons, but uh, really, uh, re- I really loved that kind of, heritage and and working with with one of his daughter Walt's daughters and you know I I didn't know Ms. Mrs. Disney even knew I existed and I thought I was going to be fired when he said <laughs> bringing Mrs. Disney in what did I do wrong? <laughs> well what was it like meeting her? What what was she like? She was very uh very kind, very cordial um uh, and I didn't, I didn't know what they wanted then, you know, she had talked to Marty and we went to New York. The event was at the Waldorf the, and she, and she was with Marty and Diane and Ron came later, I think, or something, but it was the, so it was kind of a special thing because they, that Marty had known them for so long, mm-hmm. but I, I thought she was very kind and, and very nice. And I, I asked her one time, I ran into her quickly later, and I said, you know, I really appreciated being chosen to do that. I said, I know there's other things, but I said for such a special award, and uh, I just wondered why you chose me. And she said, I, I really, she said, I read your your book, and she said, I just felt you had the heart for it, and I've seen some of the work you've done, and Marty really wanted you to do this too so that was nice that's really you know i tell students film you never know who's watching your work if you let your work speak for itself and you know know the difference between arrogance and confidence and kind of always be willing to learn and all that stuff and you know i just you can't assume you know i i just was pleased that they gave me that yeah absolutely yeah. So, you know, you come to wed, you, Marty brings you into wed and, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, what were your impressions going in and being exposed to this project, this Epcot project and just being exposed to wed in general? Like what, how did you feel? What was your reaction to all that? Well, I, that's an interesting question. I, I had heard a lot about marty sklar and i knew 
I mean, I didn't know him really. Obviously, he had, he knew how I was, I guess, to a point. But I'd heard how tough he could be to work for. You know, he kind of learned from Walt Disney. You know, and uh, so I was a little nervous. You know, when in you know because I was still pretty new with Disney, and uh, I had done what's gotten into the Matterhorn and the electrical parade spots and stuff he had seen and oh, written and produced wow, those. Yeah. And, and he he liked those. Marty knew about them. They actually uh, ran that commercial and uh, the electrical parade is so filmic and it was just beautiful. That was one of my first assignments. And and uh, he just happened to see those. And then I, oh yeah, and I did what really did it. I did a little film called A Glimpse Behind the Dreams for Rail and Les Colt, who was a Disney ambassador, and she took that film with her. It was about a twelve-minute film or something, and and Marty really liked that. It was kind of rough, but he could see the potential there because it was kind of the behind-the-scenes story of Imagineering, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so learned a lot working on that. And I had to go up to Wed to do that. So from that was the great thing that. In those days, even though my office was at Disneyland in Anaheim there, I was always back and forth with Wed in the studio, kind of getting to know people and learn more about it. Right. But but even back, you know, in the musical days that the real group that I was a member of was called the Ones, W-U-N-Z. They were called the Fabulous Ones or Real Humble. Uh, <laughs> that, that was a pretty good hit, and especially on the East Coast. And that was the one where we got television exposure. That's so wild. And like you said, yeah. it's just a little bit of everything. Yeah, um, it is, yeah. You, they have, I know I've seen that Matterhorn spot you did. Uh, I know they've shown that at D23 events before. That's <laughs> such a fun spot. And I have to talk to Michael Vargo about that. <laughs> absolutely into the matter i remember hiring the guy who did that voice i could not find a voice that worked and finally hired this one guy that did a great job and, and uh, i think he ended up doing voices for lucas i think his name was percy rodriguez or something like that so, oh wow okay a real good voice <laughs> well you mentioned filming the electrical parade how did you go about that i would imagine that would be kind of difficult thing to film it it was really tough. That's when I got in trouble again because I didn't know what you couldn't do. Right. I'll tell you about Mickey Mouse on Spaceship Earth in a minute. That was really a yes. Thing. The uh, uh, that was really neat because I don't know how we got around the union thing. I guess we had an Orange County grip or something. But the studio guys came down and we placed cameras up on the on the fire station and up on top of plaza pavilion we had cameras up on the roof and had a little light thrown down on main street and uh, then i had cameras now we had several this was film cameras too so separate magazines of film recording not video so uh we actually shot it on film which was beautiful quality you can imagine so uh we did it with and I'd signed releases with people actually guests in the park and we just shot the heck out of both parades. They did two each night, uh twice each night. And uh just shot all this footage and then I would spent days and days and days up at the studio editing. And then I went uh they flew me to Florida to cut their electrical parade spot together with our footage, but I had to show their castle or not Mm-hmm. They couldn't tell which castle was which. So that was interesting. Uh, so I actually 
put together spots for both parks, the electrical parade for Walt Disney World and Disneyland, and, and uh, met Bob Yanni, who you know designed it and worked with him, and it, it was really neat. But but the uh, there was management there that was uh, in charge of some of the shops and everything got really upset because they said the lights were some of the lights we use were glary and the guest eyes of main street or something, but, Oh, well, you know, we had to see them. Right. So then who did that? Like <laughs> me, <laughs> me, <laughs> still pretty new, but they used that footage for years after that because of being mm. shot on film. It's still around. It's gorgeous. Some of the most still looks good. You know, but, well, speaking of footage that got used forever, I, you've got to tell the Mickey story because <laughs> that's a classic. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I I would usually get you know use judgment enough to get permission, <laughs> right? Things, but I don't know. Somehow we got a wild hair up, you know, to do. Uh, do something crazy. So uh, got Mickey of this uh, in a, a small person playing Mickey in the suit and and uh, put her up through a hatch in the top of Spaceship Earth, which is about 17 stories high, as you probably know it. And so put her up there and had it literally the her feet tied down everything with rope and did it at 7.30 in the morning at sunrise before the park opened for guests were there and wanted to do a helicopter flyby with her waving, you know, up, up. Mm -hmm. most people don't know it's a her, you know, but anyway, a diminutive person. But um, we, uh, uh, I worked with a guy named Hank Johnson and he shot it and I went in the helicopter one time and then I was actually in spaceship helping hold her down and we did several passes and, and it, it looked really neat. I mean, you know, you know what the footage looks like, and we were really happy with it. And then Marty gets a call from Dick Nunes. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> so, I don't want the head of that guy who did that. <laughs> you know, he was ready to fire me on the spot. <laughs> and I interviewed Dick late years later for the the Disneyland piece, and it was so funny. And he remembered that he said, "He said I got to admit, we use that footage still to this day." <laughs> Exactly. It digitized it, treated it. He said, but we never did that again. <laughs> never allowed. He said, you better not ever do that again. He was still giving me a hard time about it. But that, that footage has been everywhere. And that the person who was in the Mickey suit, I've seen where she's been interviewed about that. <laughs> she's, oh, wow. She was terrified. <laughs> well, I was about to ask how she felt about it because I I didn't realize she was that scary. scared. We had her anchored down and everything. I mean, she wouldn't have blown off of there. We wouldn't have had her up there for this windy, but <laughs> I can't believe we did that. It was real early in the morning and the park opened, but somebody in operations reported it, I guess. <laughs> Said Bob almost killed Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> And you don't want an angry Dick Nunes on the phone ever. No, you don't. No, you don't. It's funny how later we had Dick Nunes and I were fine and had a good relationship, but he would never, he'd always kid me about that. You know? Well, I want you to talk more about filming at WED because I, I was recently watching several of these films that um, the preview center film is so good and the behind the scenes at, uh, of Epcot is such a good film. Oh, the and, We're Dead Ready song? Yeah, tell we're me about that. Ready, yeah, that's a fun song. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good right. song. Who wrote, do you know who wrote that? I forgot. 
Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. We hired some people to write it. And I they were through an agency. Can't remember. Oh, okay. Uh, I think it was MM, MC, MMC agency, something like that. I can't remember. We worked through so many agencies. So. All right. But the filming that you did, those, I, you know, you were talking about these sort of periscope shots you did. Uh, tell us about that because I, I can visualize in my mind what you're talking about going down through these models. You know? Yeah, a little snorkel. It was called the Kenworthy snorkel system. It was a special camera with a little snorkel lens where you could actually, on a little rod, uh, pretty it was film too and it, you could go down inside the those particular scale models you know especially the half inch and one inch scale which were big enough to get down into right it so, looked really good with those world showcase you could go down the street yeah and it would look look really good yeah that's what we did and um we filmed each pavilion you know in that big model in the great big room there and um, I build miniatures myself, and so I could really relate. Those model builders were incredible. Absolutely. Really well, and one other thing that struck me watching those films was the the amount of detail that you captured in the behind the scenes type things. With you know whether it was people rehearsing for the films for the pavilions, or the designers, you know, creating, you mentioned these huge backdrops, paintings and yeah. things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, how much film did you shoot? Cause I would imagine you captured quite a bit. The, the backdrops were at the place called J, uh, JC backings. That was in Culver city. I think it was on the MGM lot or something, but we outsourced oh. that for the energy pavilion and they were huge, but as a ratio of 17 to one, it just, there's tons of footage. And you know what's so strange, Michael, is that footage, a lot of the historical footage for all the parks is all over the place. It's really unfortunate because it's there's there's archives at WED, there's some at the studio, there's some, believe it or not, at Tokyo Disneyland, some in Florida. Mm. It's hard to find some of it. You really have to be a sleuth to locate even a lot of the Epcot. I don't even know where a lot of that stuff is now. That's a shame because it's such a precious priceless resource that i know i uh, i love i know people who are always saying well i wish they'd put you know like your films for example i wish they'd put those on disney plus just for people to watch because they're still so <laughs> they're such great little time capsules of that park and of imagineering maybe you could suggest that i they've changed programming people is disney plus so much i was writing some stuff for them but they changed seemed like every month so it was a new person <laughs> So sorry, and they didn't seem to be real interested in the heritage of things. So I don't know. I don't know where. Yeah, that's a shame because there are a lot of people who are very interested. I know. Um, you mentioned working on the seas. Uh, did you work with Bob Ballard? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, pretty closely with him. And when after right, at, what was really exciting is right after he uh, discovered the Titanic after looking for it for five years and couldn't find it you know because it had split up and and floated uh gosh i think a couple of miles away from where the coordinates where it sank and so he was so excited but he uh he called uh kim murphy who was kind of headed up the whole living seas according the tank and all the oceanographic stuff and and so he and uh 
Tim Delaney and a guy named Mike West, who I worked with and myself, uh, we were invited to have dinner with Bob and, uh, and his wife, Marge, at that time, uh, before he did any interviews. And he told us the story over dinner at Walt Disney. Oh, wow. We were down. And we were all just like, I mean, to sit there with him. And, and I had lunch with him several times. I worked with him all, pretty much. We actually filmed him on a boat out in San Diego. His parents lived in San Diego. We did some of the segments for the Living Seas where he kind of hosted them out there. So I loved working with him. And he he was so energetic and fun on camera, whereas it, it was opposed to a lot of the oceanographers and marine biologists that the others we interviewed, they were pretty dull and dry. <laughs> and when yeah. it so much, like bioluminescent creatures that lit up, we actually went down and uh, we got some footage, but actually filmed some ourselves down below uh, sunlight. And these colorful creatures that bumped into the window and we're filming and we put electrical parade music to them. And, and there's some <laughs> scientists got really upset. We said, we got to make it entertaining and keep it short. People's attention span, they're not going to sit there for an hour and hear all of the siphonophore and scientific names for them. We just want them to remember there's creatures that live below sunlight that light up. Right, right. Have some fun with it, you know, educate people that way. So um, that was really neat. I I felt like I'd gone to oceanography school studying about octopus and sharks and, you know, you know a lot about the hurricanes and the oceans and the tides and all. It was neat, neat project. Right. And these were those little sort of informational videos that were throughout the pavilion that you could pull up. Oh, Sea Watch. Yeah, the Sea Watch shows. Sea Watch, that's what it was called. They were called. Absolutely. And then we had the, the main film and then we had... Uh, I worked with Mike on uh, animated Atlas of the world and oh, okay, thing like, yeah, you know, the, the Sylvester Stallone stuff. And that was really a fun show. We had a lot of, a lot of fun on that. that That's great. Was, um, you mentioned, uh, and I didn't even ask you how you came in to write the Disneyland, the first quarter century, because uh, that's a, that's a fun book and I've got it on my shelf back home. Okay. Um, how, how'd you come to write that? I've, I've signed about 700 of those books, <laughs> and now I don't know where mine is. Uh, I just, um, that was one of the things that Marty threw at me, and I said, well, I've never written a book before. And he said, well, you will have now. So, uh, <laughs> that you know, and that, so I worked with a another young lady named Chris Donovan, and she and I split up the writing on the cut lines and, and all of that stuff. And then we worked... Um, there was a guy named Pete Weatherby, actually out of the Disneyland office, who worked on the layout of it and everything. And Gary Kruger had shot, he and I had worked together a lot, the still photography, he shot a lot of the pictures mm -hmm. in there, including the one with the castle and the Matterhorn. It looks like it in Bavaria, something or something. Yeah. Stuff. But uh, that was neat. But, but then they, what was really strange is the legal department at the studio had me write the letters on Walt Disney Studios letterhead. I still have those letters to Sophia Loren and, and all the stars. A lot of them were still alive then. And, um, you know, Jerry Lewis and all the people's shots we had in there. And it's like, I don't know if they had me do that because they were afraid they would be rejected or what. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> but I've still got, you know, Elizabeth Taylor. And then they wrote me letters. So I got all their autographs. So, because I oh, wow. just give me the signature. 
So I said, if you're going to make me do this, I get to keep their signature. <laughs> we need copies in the legal department. It was a different day, but um, that I was, was about to say legal departments are very different now. I would imagine. Yeah, <laughs> true, but that was, uh, yeah, that was neat, and and I of course learned an awful lot about the park. What's really fun that, that I share with students how you can connect dots that seem that are seemingly un related or disconnected but can connect later because years later when i did the 50th anniversary that having written that book or co-written it helped bring back a lot of memories to put in that film in the 90 Mm -hmm. minute piece that we did about you know for the 50th anniversary to bring a lot of that stuff forward so that it would that was that was uh, important an important tool for me to use later because obviously, when I wrote that book, I had no idea it would be a key tool for an actual film or a 90-minute special that I wanted to do. And um, Yeah, 25 years later, you would be, be using it. It would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, it was, really, it was really neat. Yeah, it's true. It was that many years later. So I, I had kind of learned a lot of the history then and about Walt, too, because I'd done that film about him. So. Mm-hmm. So another thing that you worked on that I I know a lot of people in my generation remember fondly and were excited when it came back briefly was the behind the scenes for Captain EO video. Oh yeah, Yeah. is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did a uh, the pre-show. I worked with a guy named Bob Zalk. Did a great job editing it. We that's strange. We did that at Imagineering too, probably because it was a pre-show too they pulled segments out of it while people were waiting to go in to see captain eo it showed him rehearsing and everything i have Mm -hmm. a funny story about that i can't dance a lick my wife was a professional dancer but i was filming a segment behind the scenes while they the other people were filming the main film and then uh they did a number again for us basically behind the scenes of michael practicing and of course, he does everything perfectly. And I was just teasing him. And I said, and I said, cut, I said, Michael, you missed a step. <laughs> <laughs> he thought I was serious. <laughs> oh, Bob, I can do it again. I went, no, Michael, believe me, I'm kidding. It was perfect. <laughs> he thought I was serious. He was so polite. It was very pleasant to work with. <laughs> oh, that's good. And we that's took good. him, I, he came to, to Imagineering and Carl Bendrino was president called me up and he said, Michael Jackson's up here and I need you to take him down and show him what we're doing with the living sea. So I did, I was taking him around. It was so funny. I was walking around Imagineering with him and I could see out of the corner of my eye, this, everybody staring, watching us walking down the <laughs> hall because he was really on top then and healthy yeah. and off beat it. And, and uh, I think Chevy Chase was with us too, we're all walking around quite a really so, yeah because he was working with us too on some stuff he was pulled off it but he and john landis were in a lot of the seas meetings and planning meetings with us and uh we kind really? of got to know it, each other and, and i heat so chevy chase got on this on w- one mock-up ride and he said i can do this and it made him sick it was hilarious and i said you're just as much of a smart aleck as you portray sometimes and we had a kick working with him. He'd razz me all the time about stuff in these meetings. Really fun. And then Michael Jackson, I took him on the the hydrolators. It was a mock-up for those hydrolators in the Living Seas. Mm-hmm. He actually got scared. 
he was frightened in there. <laughs> so he was like, like, I said, Michael, it's not going anywhere. It's just made to feel like that. So we had to, he was really getting freaked out. So we had to stop and let him out. So, That's hilarious. I almost, almost killed Mickey. I didn't want to kill Michael. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, one of the biggest stars in the world. You got to take care of him. Mickey when Mouse you're and him Michael around. Jackson, that wouldn't be very popular if they. No, no, that's true. You would have been two for two. Mickey and Michael. Yeah. Well, he had to have been excited since he was such a big fan to go around and see all these different things. Oh, he loved it. And it it was fun because he appreciated everything so much. He was almost like a little kid. And and, and, uh, I really enjoyed that time. Yeah, we we did shoot some behind-the-scenes footage with him for promotion stuff. It was neat. It was fun working with him. Right. And it, and like you said, it was the pre-show, which was so memorable. And then they brought that back. Um, well, it's probably 10 years ago now, but, uh, it was back in the park. So everybody got to see it again. I heard that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned somebody before that I wanted to, I don't know, get your thoughts about, and that is uh, Randy Bright, who was so important to the Epcot films. Absolutely. Yeah. For the, for the actual films, yeah, the, and the pavilions and everything. Yeah, what was he like to work with? Um, Randy kind of, he was uh, instrumental in he and Marty together giving me the Epcot films. But um, one of the things that was really neat, I didn't know a thing about Circle Vision. And he mm-hmm. actually gave me the Western Hemisphere segments for one of the Circle Vision films. And that was so bizarre that, that thing nine and actually nine cameras running. I mean, it was so different now, but that was, those were actually film cameras all synced up and looked like a flying saucer and this big, huge thing. And we were shooting uh, down in the uh, Mayan pyramids and different places. And uh, so it, it's funny how you can almost know too much about something and kind of stop (laughs) yourself. I didn't know you couldn't tilt them to look up because uh-huh. behind it would just show dirt <laughs> something i wanted to show on a ceiling this beautiful artwork and and i was and the guy the crew's looking at me like oh god this punk kid you know what is he doing and uh and i said well let's try it and i found something really attractive below you had to be really careful we all had to hide behind rocks and stuff because it sees everything it see mm-hmm. a beautiful shot in front of you in a purple gift shops behind you so you got to block it off but anyway, we for the first time, because I didn't know what you couldn't do, the first time they actually tilted the circle vision rig to show and they used that on the Sistine Chapel ceiling to get it. And uh, they'd never done that before. It's all by accident because I asked for something that I didn't know you couldn't do. <laughs> right, absolutely. Could, there was a way we could do it. And uh, so I learned a, a lot about that. It was very bizarre, though, having to control everything around you. And it's so funny when you watch, when you've worked, directed it, when you look at the film, you know the crew's behind the trees and rocks. And everything. Everybody's hiding from it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I actually water skied in one of the scenes. A skier didn't show up, and I could slalom. So I'm in it going back and forth and I'm way away. And Randy says, you put yourself in the film. And I said, well, you can't see me. I'm just a skier. <laughs> he says, yeah, that's true. You're not going to get fan mail. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, which film was that? Was that one of the, um, 
America, Beautiful American Journey is one of those. It was a magic carpet around the world. A magic carpet around the world. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, that, that would make sense since it was around the world. And I worked with Jeff Blythe some on the China, you know, did was involved kind of with several of them and in uh, the France film with Rick Harper. And Rick's actually the one who kind of taught me about circle vision, even though the France film is five panel, but really great working with with those guys. He and I were in touch until about a year ago. That's great. Uh, They were uh, it's it's a fascinating group of films. They're they're at Epcot. It is. It'll never be. I really. I don't think really duplicated like, like it was. That was a huge format. It'd be extremely expensive now to do. Yeah, well, that's just true. scoring of them alone, but much less lining up that kind of footage, film footage, and absolutely a lot of work. So, how long were you officially at? When did you officially leave Disney? Uh, Nineteen ninety. And I contracted ever since. Um, right. Did several films about Epcot and for the Disney Channel and different things. So, and of course, the Disneyland Secret Stories and Magic, which a lot of people will know. That was yeah for the twenty fifth. That was a, a great piece. I did some. Thank you. I did some marketing pieces in between, and uh, some of them I can't. I don't even remember. I'm starting to think back, but uh, I never really lost that contact uh, it was really neat i did a few things for universal and back with cbs i directed the cbs place to be with lee greenwood and roberta flack and all this then when cbs would go to different cities to their news anchors and everything and and i so that was kind of neat to get back doing stuff with cbs again too i would imagine so, so. After yeah. all those years there was a guy charles kappelman he was a, a vice president of cbs and um and I hadn't seen him in for a long time, and he tracked me down and had me come and do that. And by then, I had the experience to do do that, you know. So I wasn't. I remember we had kind of a reunion of several people from a lot of them have passed away, but a few years back with Carol Burnett, and I said, "You remember when I was a punk kid just working in your dressing room?" She said, "Yeah, and now you're just a punk." <laughs> <laughs> Typical Carol, like great. <laughs> I would imagine she would have been, I, I'm guessing, fun to work with. Oh, yeah. She was awesome. She said, you became a producer and never called me about anything. I said, well, you were always the boss. We had nothing to <laughs> give me a hard time. We couldn't afford you. What are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? You're too big a star. I didn't tell her that. But <laughs> no, she was, as, you, as being a young kid working with somebody like that who wasn't uh you know an egomaniac or anything carol was mm-hmm. a very neat person rather she was always very together everybody loved working on that show and she's still going yeah, she's she still is. at it i've had no contact with her in a long time but i'm sure i heard she's doing well yeah well that's great well so of you know we mentioned a lot of a lot of stuff during your time at disney is there anything we didn't touch on that that you'd like to bring up that you uh can think of oh gosh I, you know when you're there when you're around total about 31 years with doing stuff for that company i'm sure i mean i somebody i think it was deborah del mar or somebody we had the reunion she said you know mm-hmm. we researched it and you did over 100 projects for disney and she said you're kind of Holy unofficial cow. disney legend and 
Imagineering, and I said, "Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I just loved what I was doing." Yeah, they they threw a lot of stuff at me, and I had good teams to work with, and um, it was uh, it was really good. You know, we had, you know, we had that when you're dealing with a lot of creative people, it's kind of like herding cats sometimes, and then you get the ego wars and all that as part of it. But you have to learn as you go. You're never gonna. I tell students, you're never going to like everybody and not everybody's going to ever like you, but you got to try to you know, work in the best relationship, the best way you can. Absolutely. You know, and be fair. So. Well, is there uh, anything we always like to ask people what they're, what they're working on now, what they're doing these days. So uh, anything uh, interesting that you're into these days? Ironically, uh, or coincidentally or whatever, I, um, was talking to, um, I was on a conference call with the uh, Disney Hometown Museum and Marceline, yeah. the K Mullins and everything, talking to them about some special projects called Walt Disney Archaeology. And I presented that to Caitlin at the Disney Family Museum and at the Presidio. And she knew that Diane and Ron had walked me through that before it was ever opened and everything. So since I knew, you know, the Disney family and stuff, that connection happened. So I've been I'm talking to both of them. Um, and then I've got a production coming up. I live in, we live now in a little coastal village on Cape and North New England, um, about 40 miles north of Boston. And so we're going to be filming in February in, a, in an 1800s theater. Everything around here is history, you can imagine. Right. <laughs> Right. Little village Hamilton near here is named after Alexander Hamilton. That's where he's from. And there's buildings, houses around here with plaques on them back to the 1600s. I mean, when it was still under British rule. I mean, that's amazing. But so we're shooting in this old theater. Um, and it's a it's an odd approach because it's a, a multi-camera shoot of a theater production called Children oh, of wow. the Street. So the actors are coming out of New York and Boston and, and Different, so it's a whole different thing. Is there's a theater director, and then I'm, uh, I'm, I mentor young directors, but I'm going to direct this one and work with a young crew to capture it, and then uh, pitch it to a, a some direct contacts I have at Netflix and Apple TV programming, and see what happens. And uh, it's pretty uh, real stories, pretty serious stuff, but it's, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated with it because the. The children on the streets is a real problem. Mm -hmm. Run away, you know, from run away from their parents or something. It's really kind of sad, but some of the stories yeah. are really intriguing. And uh, that sounds really interesting. So it, I think it can help people, the, the parents especially, realize how much they can they affect their children one way or another. Not realizing it, so. And then my wife and I have been working a lot with the homeless, too, in the city. So and not in this little village where we live. But um, so that, you know, we're trying to do some stuff that's uh, that's actually helpful to society Absolutely. and culture. You know, oh, that's fantastic. Back that way. Well, I hope you'll keep us uh, keep us informed and let us know what you're working on. And, you know, any of your disney projects come through you know we'd love to have you back and talk about them and uh, make sure that people know about them. i really appreciate that because um these museums are kind of struggling and they could you know indirectly they can 
people could find out more about what they're doing. The one in Marceline is really neat because Walt's uh, uh, elementary school's there with his initials carved in the desk and the house that he lived in. He shared a bedroom with his sister, Ruth, and that the lady, the director of the museum lives in that house. And Walt Disney came to visit them when she was younger. They're really an interesting story there. So it's a fun little town and it's, uh, yeah. When when I made my trip from North Carolina to L.A. to uh, follow in your footsteps, I uh, drove through Marceline, and it's such a cute little town, and that museum, such a nice little museum, and uh, of course the Disney Family Museum as well is spectacular. So, the more attention they can get, the better, I think. Yeah, that it it would help. I think COVID really hurt them too, like it did a lot of businesses. I'm sure. A lot of I'm sure. And so, um, we'll keep crossing our fingers that some of your uh, good, some of your good stuff gets on Disney Plus too. I, yeah, I would really like that. And um, I've never met Leslie Iwerks, but Howard Green has tried for a long time to get us together. And every time I've been out there, she hasn't been out there or something. But I, I think she did a great job with the Imagineering piece. I'd like, I'd like, I wish I would have known what she was doing because I could have told her where a lot of that footage is too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, a team-up between you two would be something else. I'd enjoy that a lot. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really uh, we really appreciate it. It was great to hear your stories. Well, thank you. I appreciate your interest. Well, that wraps up our interview with Bob Gardner. Jeff, what a career Bob has had. I know, and... You know, I now want to go talk to him about all his musical achievements because, you know, he had a little <laughs> a little musical career before his film career. Uh, but, yeah, just to pick his brain. A fellow Tar Heel also, we might add. Uh, I know. I was really excited by that. Uh, a fellow Tar Heel. And, you know, he's one of these people we talk to that just drops in these little tidbits here and there and make you say, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just glaze over that. That's a whole nother topic in and of itself. We've really got into get into that. So, yeah, lots of lots of exciting stuff. And uh, you know, he's the fellow who put Mickey on Spaceship Earth. You can't beat that. Well, and there's so many things uh, that warrant further investigation. I mean, well, first first and foremost, in my mind, is uh, who wrote now the mystery who wrote we're getting ready for you you know like we need to we need answers exactly exactly they're big questions now big mysteries yeah but uh, yeah it just uh like you said responsible for so many of these things that brought us so much joy in this specific time frame not to mention hands-on and so many of these uh, circle vision films and all that kind of stuff. So very mm -hmm. interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we thank him for his time, for taking the time to talk to us and being a very uh, eager and willing guest, which we always appreciate. Absolutely. Thanks, Bob, for joining us. Well, Michael, uh, it's about that time in the podcast where we check in with our Patreon you know, we've we've been on vacances, as they say in France. Uh, we haven't been uh, checking in with our Patreon people that much. What's uh, what's going on over there? Well, gosh, we do have some new Patreon pals. 
to talk about this month. We'd like to welcome Joshua, John, H. Hayes, and Mark. Welcome all of them to the Patreon. They'll, of course, be getting early access to episodes, getting our special monthly live stream, which we love to do, which we'll be doing again pretty soon at the end of the month. And uh, yeah, just having a good time getting some extra special deals and helping us out. And uh, we really appreciate it. And of course, you can find that all at patreon.com slash progress city USA and your contributions as always are tax deductible. And we thank you all who have done it. And those of you who are considering it, but thank you all in general for just listening. Uh, we ask you to keep in touch with us. We're on Twitter. Michael's at progress city USA. I'm at Jeff G Crawford. We love to hear your thoughts on the episodes. You can also just email us at podcast at progress city usa.com and we didn't mention michael that the patreon of course is is tax deductible it's getting to be tax season. that's right yeah, and I uh, that's, to say that. i've been trying to remind people because this this time of year is when uh people are starting to do their taxes so it's good to have those contributions from last year don't forget to write them off yeah, folks. those people are laughing all the way to the bank <laughs> that's right and uh yeah, I, I will encourage everybody to get in touch. I sent a message to our Patreon folks just the other day saying, you know, get in touch. It's the start of a new year. It's when we think back and think how grateful we are for everybody who's helped us get to this point. But also we're looking at the year ahead and what we're going to do next. And you know, this is a big year with the 100th anniversary of the company coming up. So if you uh, have any ideas of things you'd like to hear us talk about or things subjects you'd like us to explore let us know we'd love to hear yeah we always enjoy that kind of feedback and ideas but we're not done celebrating another anniversary the 40th of epcot michael what is coming up next on our feed well <laughs> you may notice our epcot episodes have been going by the naming conventions of the old Epcot parking lot area by area. We had harvest and communications, things like that. Uh, next, we're going to perhaps the most oddly named parking lot area from days of yore, and that is mobility. <laughs> we're going to be talking about transportation. We're going to be talking about that wonderful world of motion. And uh, all all subjects falling under the umbrella of mobility. That is an interesting name for a parking a, a piece of parking lot. It is. It is. It really is. I kind of got a chuckle when I was pulling up the list to find out what what they were. So, you know, uh, yeah, mobile mobility, like a newfound potion. And so, go go Goodyear get the feel of the wheel of a Ford, and of course, get in your General Motors vehicle and get ready. That sounds excellent. Uh, there's a lot to talk about there. I'm sure we won't get to it all, but we're going to try to get to some of it. That's for sure. So will you join us when we return with mobility? Will you uh, sign up for our Patreon? You might be able to see us in the live stream pretty soon. And we hope to see you all for the next episode, please subscribe 
if you haven't already. And we will see you next time with mobility. So long.